Hello, everyone. I'm Kevin Gastola, co-host of the Unauthorized Disclosure Weekly Podcast. This episode is free, but every other episode is a premium episode for our subscribers. This is the eighth year of Unauthorized Disclosure, and Unauthorized Disclosure is one of the longest-running podcasts on the left. We encourage you to sign up for Rockfin, R-O-K-F-I-N. Find our channel, unauth-disclosure, and become a subscriber of our show. That's rockfin.com. And we know Rockfin isn't for everyone, so we still have our Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. You can sign up there for access to premium episodes. We are tremendously grateful for those who support our show. We wouldn't be here after seven years without these people, you make it possible for us to create a space for fresh and perceptive conversations that fearlessly question what is all too often accepted as normal in society and what too often goes unquestioned in our politics. Now, here's this week's episode. Hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Unauthorized Disclosure. I'm one of your hosts, Ryan Kalik, and I'm joined by the show's other host, Kevin Gastola. And you'll also notice if you're watching that we've got another person with us, Eugene Perrier, uh, as a guest today. He, You know him as the host of Breakthrough News. Um, and I'm so excited to have you on, Eugene. You're just like one of the most knowledgeable people I know about like everything. Um, and so there's a lot we want to get to on this episode, but I wanted to open by first noting that, well, as we're recording this, the Biden administration just did the most presidential thing they could possibly do, which is uh, launch airstrikes in Syria. It's kind of like a rite of passage, I think, for presidents as, at this point uh, to bomb something in the Middle East in their first hundred days. Right. Um, and before I get your take on this, Eugene, I just kind of want to break down what happened because I think people are a little confused about why Biden bombed Syria. They just have some idea that it has something to do with Iran. Um, so there are these um, Iraqi paramilitary groups that are a part of the Iraqi state that played a huge role in fighting uh, ISIS. And that's the reason they exist. They're the popular mobilization forces. Um, and they're often referred to in US media in this really derogatory, like Iranian-backed Shia militias, uh, as though they're super evil. Um, but they, they did a lot in fighting ISIS. They were super important to that fight and they are indeed allied very closely with Iran. Um, and one of the reasons that they exist and even have a base in Syria is because their role there is to fight the remnants of ISIS. Uh, and at the same time, these groups uh, want the US out of Iraq and they want the US to stop sanctioning their neighbor Iran and they want the US to return to the Iran nuclear deal. So in recent months, in order to send a message, they have been, because the U.S. has refused to withdraw, which they've been demanding since last year when the U.S. killed uh, the Iranian general Qasem Soleimani, as well as the beloved and admired uh, commander of the popular mobilization forces, Abu Mahdi Mohandas, who got much less attention than Soleimani, who was also killed in that drone strike. Since then, these uh, PMF groups have been demanding that the U.S. withdraw. Uh, and the U.S. has not done that. I'm not talking about the U.S. embassy. I'm talking about U.S. forces in Iraq um, and stop bombing them. And so as the they've been trying to send this message to the U.S. with these rocket attacks on the greens, what's called the green zone in Iraq, 
Um, and a couple of weeks ago, one of those rocket attacks actually killed a contractor. And so this, I'm, and again, I'm just saying this for context, this is definitely not to suggest that the US was in any way right to do this, but the US was sending a message back by then bombing these Iraqi groups inside Syria, uh, inside of the areas that they are operating in Syria. Um, and it looks like they maybe killed one of them. Uh, but the point is, this was actually a huge escalation. It's being covered by the media as though like some sort of measured response by the Biden administration. I don't think it's going to lead to war or anything. Um, but that's just to give some context. Now, after all that, Eugene, I would love to hear your take on on these recent airstrikes. No, I, I appreciate that. And um, you know, I'm glad you brought up the issue of the media. I mean, the New York Times, I don't know, maybe they've changed it by now, but the New York Times article last night was was unbelievable. I mean, they just completely uncritically quoted the you know CENTCOM or whoever it was saying that it was a relatively small strike and then went on to say that I believe it was seven 500 pound bombs. So that's what, <laughs> 3,500 pounds of bombs? And I would just like relative, whatever, I can't remember the exact phrase, relatively limited, relatively whatever, but I would just like, what? Like, and they, they, they dropped, you know, 3,500 pounds of bombs on a cluster of buildings, relatively small. And I just, it, it was stunning to me to even see that, but it gives you a sense, I think, of just how totally, you know, completely uh, veiled the American public is on the true impact uh, of U.S. wars abroad, and you know the the impact of these kind of bombings. Uh, I believe I think 17 people were killed. We don't know exactly who they were. Um, at least I, I don't know exactly who they were. Maybe there's more information than I know. But either way, putting all that aside, I think that's a really important point about this entire thing. Is the fact that this is considered a relatively measured response? I think speaks to how just totally out of whack the general concept is. Of, of the role of American military power, at least in the mainstream media, the way it's sort of brought back to people and, and the way I think that impacts how people view about the policies in the region, because when they seem less destructive uh, by orders of magnitude, I, I do think it's actually easier for people to agree. And yeah, I mean, I, I find myself being totally unsurprised that Biden did this. I mean, I think that his entire sort of lead up to this as it concerns, you know, Middle East policy has been, I mean, even just from the first week, flying those B-52s um, uh, right over there, over the Gulf, you know, is suggesting nuclear capacity. The fact that he's taken this non-position in the so-called negotiations with Iran, um, which obviously they don't really want to go back in the deal with the things they're saying about the ballistic missiles and foreign policy and so on and so forth, the, the embassy in Jerusalem, uh, <clears throat> we could go on and on and on. I think it seems pretty clear that the Biden administration is, is trying to reassert the fact that the United States is truly the dominant force in the region as the precondition to any other thing. And I think as a threat to other countries about what they should be doing um, if they want to get back on the good side of the United States, not what they expect to be doing. So I, I think it's, 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 you know, shocking that I agree with you, Rania, that it's not really connected in a major way to the Iraqi occupation. I mean, I think the point you made about Mr. Mohandas is, is so true. I mean, just imagine if some other country that is allegedly an enemy of the United States just launched a, like a strike and just killed a major government leader in a third country at, the, at an official event. Uh, I mean, it would be a complete and total outrage. And that's exactly what's happened. And then people act shocked that there are many Iraqis who are very aggrieved about what is clearly a deep affront to the sovereignty of the country, uh, which you know goes on top of all the other humiliations they've had to face, um, you know, since the U.S. went there in two thousand and three.
Yeah, it is. You know, I think that I think people need to understand this as like the U.S. is playing out this proxy war against Iran on other people's territory. And that's right. Like you mentioned, Muhandis being killed as well as Soleimani. That happened in a third country. It happened in Iraq. And now you've got the U.S. bombing Iraqis in Syria, yet another country to send a message to Iran. Like it's so outrageous and absurd. It would be like the, it'd be like if the Chinese bombed like Canadian allies in Mexico. Like it's just so, you know what I mean? Like it's so bad shit. Taking out Christia Freeland just got a kit with the, with the, uh, or something like that in the Chipotle castle. Yeah, I hear you. (laughs) But I think, and I think what's also interesting here is like to see, the reaction, I, of course, again, none of this is surprising. As you said, it's not surprising. Like, it's just a continuation of the maximum pressure campaign. And it's a continuation of what we saw under Obama, which continued under Trump, which now continues under Biden, right? American imperialism just kind of has this ongoing trajectory. But it's still, nevertheless, um, quite irritating, I guess, mm-hmm. to watch mm-hmm. the liberal reaction. And maybe we can kind of like also bring in the whole kids in cages thing. Because, uh, you know, I was watching this, you know, these like tweets from liberals yesterday after the bombing and they were they were like, it's so nice to have this president who's not like tweeting mean things and just just like he's just doing and it's so competent and like like excited and justifying the bombing. And it's much the same, you know, in much the same way as like Biden reopens these uh, this this Trump era facility for migrant children and liberals are like bending over backwards and twisting themselves into a knot trying to explain uh you know these aren't kids in cages you know they're 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 children in overflow facilities um so it's just like it's actually like kind of scary it's scary like how similar liberals who are like on the democrat team democrat behave in defending their team just like republicans do yeah, well, I mean, that's what teams are about in a way, right? You defend your side against the other side in, in, in the broader game. I think it's just unfortunate that people are on a team that actually does not value them, uh, the things they care about, the things that they need to make their families stronger, uh, which is pretty much the Democratic leadership's response to their base, like follow us, defend us at all costs, and we'll do nothing for you. But yeah, I think you know the people who already have money who make up this liberal middle-class layer, they don't care. And so they espouse this politics of, you know, uh, yeah, great. Great to finally have someone who's going to act in the interest of the system in a way that we feel is, um, you know, fine or whatever. And I think it speaks so much to the narrowness of the policy debate that people even look at these things as if there's no other route. And it's sort of like, well, what is Biden supposed to do? These un- these unaccompanied minors are coming across the border and, you know, they have to do something with them. And I just think, but is that something to put them in a trailer that has bars on the windows? I mean, I, I just... These are unaccompanied minors who are coming here as refugees from social and economic devastation. Like, is it, there's not a summer camp you can keep them at? <laughs> right. What, what are people, I mean, it's, they're treating them like hardened criminals. And I know that there's a lot of, you know, things we could say about even that concept, but it just seems stunning to me that just like a bunch of little refugee kids who obviously, I and mean, where are they going to go? Like, just, there's, I don't know, it just seems like hotels. I mean, they just seem like there's so many other options for where they could be in these kids. But then it's sort of like, well, I mean, you know, yes, it's 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 not as it's not great. But at least, you know, compared to Trump, they're like sending them to some school class or something. And you just think, but yeah, it's in a prison camp. 
why is that the the thing that the, there's no other solution or whatever it can be? And I think it just speaks to the narrowness of quote unquote liberal politics, which I think is not really liberal politics in the sense that people in the popular parlance think liberal, which is like progressive and good. It's liberal politics in the sense of rich bourgeois ruling class mm -hmm. politics that has a slightly nicer gloss to it. But people whose entire political orientation is really rooted in like, basically the system is right. And yeah. sometimes Republicans and bad people do the wrong thing. But, you know, in the context of all the hard choices that you have to make, you know, the Democrats are doing it in the best possible way. But, you know, it's the best possible way because we can't really have anything else. So once you've just completely, you know, eliminated that there's anything outside of the basic status quo, just slightly on the right or slightly on the left, then, you know, you adapt your politics to that view. But I think that's the type of view that people espouse and hold in particular when they have the, the, the sort of physical, social, economic surroundings around themselves that make them feel the system is working to some degree for them. And that incremental change is a big difference. Uh, and I think that's why when you look at what's uh, really happening here in the country, you see so many people who don't vote and you see how those people are overwhelmingly working class people, overwhelmingly younger people, overwhelmingly people of color, like people who need the biggest change often feel the most uh, alienated from the system. The people who are the most engaged are the people who are engaged in these little debates about, uh, you know, the slight differences between Republicans and Democrats. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. E Eugene, you're pulling on a really important thread here. And uh, I don't want to, you know, I, I don't want to disengage from it. But before we get too far from the strikes that took place in Syria, uh, I'm, I'm going to give a specific example of an exchange that took place among liberals um, uh, the, the, as the strike was being reported. Uh, it got a lot of attention. So it's possible people listening to us talk um, may have, have seen it. Um, but Amy Siskind, who is <laughs> just kind, I don't know how you say her last name. Uh, she's a liberal writer, um, claims to be an activist, but I don't really know how much activism she's actually doing. And I don't know what she considers activism other than, you know, whatever bourgeois people have as their sensibility of activism. But she tweeted, so different having military action under Biden. No middle school level threats on Twitter. Trust Biden and his team's competence. And then, you know, and the thing that I think people saw that was really amazing is that somebody who probably didn't deserve this kind of attention, but their response to it was just so incredible that it got lumped in with her own tweet. Uh, so this person, Suzanne, said, such a quiet attack. So she's, so she's agreeing. No drama, no TV coverage of bombs hitting targets, no comments how presidential Biden is. What a difference. Uh, now, you know, at this point, we've already heard people probably talk about Joe Biden and how it was a presidential act. And I think you both would would disagree. But that thing of no TV coverage, no drama, I mean, to me, that's something that's incredibly alarming on its own, because in in many ways, our wars abroad have become so covert. They're so engaged in and pursued in the shadows that we don't even have debates anymore about whether we should be at war. In fact, it's become radical just to expect Congress to talk about why military strikes are being launched and to even fill the American people in on why those targets should even be enemies, which of course we would disagree that those people should even be bombed, but we don't even debate people. We don't even debate why we are bombing people anymore.
Kevin, I think that's such a good point. I mean, you know, it reminds me, I was, this is somewhat random, but I'll, I'll bring it back around. I was watching this National Geographic show on the National Geographic channel like three years ago. And I know not a mainstream channel, but it was like produced by the Pentagon and it was about war released. <laughs> and it was, and they, this one guy was talking, some like major Pentagon strategist and just randomly offhandedly, like not even a major part of the show, he just mentioned how his grandkids we're going to be fighting the grandkids of the people they were fighting now. And I just thought, whoa, like, <laughs> like, I mean, like they produced this show, like they didn't, you know, they could have censored that out, but they decided to just put that in. And, and, and I just thought the fact that people, they don't even feel the need to hide the fact that their entire strategy is basically just occupations and wars forever in many of these regions was stunning to me. Now, how many people, you know, would have picked this up? It was obviously some like puff piece pro military thing, people who probably like that kind of thing who were watching it, but you know, be that as it may, to me, I thought that was an amazing statement from a PR perspective. And I think what you're saying about that tweet is so true. I mean, I, it's, it, it, it goes back to the thing with the New York Times and the 35 pound bombs being considered like relatively limited. I, I mean, I just feel that there is no coverage of the impact of the, the massive, I mean, not only just like the wars themselves, but even just the impact of the massive US military presence abroad. Like you think about all these bases, all these things. I mean, you, the, I mean, how many Americans have any idea about the massive level of struggles in the Philippines, in Okinawa? Um, I mean, all these places where they're building these bases, people just do not want them. And you look at what's happening in Okinawa, it's unbelievable. Um, people just do not want them. You know, massive multi-generational protest, huge thing, certainly in the Philippines, one of the biggest issues politically for 30 years is the relationship of these US bases. And you know, it's because not only what they're used for, but the fact that these US soldiers have legal immunity. So rapes are a huge issue, you know, the rise of just many different negative things that are coming around these bases. So just even that alone, beyond the impact of our US military forces, has such a huge role. And we're almost totally denuded from it. And I think that when you look at the mainstream media and the way they report this, you know, if they're not reporting from like outside the hotel, uh, it's just some random decontextualized street. You know, you rarely hear the voices of people who are in, you know, these places. You, any sort of human interest story is always pitched in like a Western, in a way that's understandable to Western people, like some poor fruit seller. Um, and the questions that are asked to set it up are, of course, entirely from the perspective of Westerners. So you never really get any sense of the how it looks from the other side mm -hmm. and how that could actually play out politically and, 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 and internationally and why people feel certain ways about America. But it's all said when they do these polls, uh, you know, every so often, which they always do, what is the country that everyone else in the rest of the world thinks is the greatest threat? And the U.S. is always at the top, always, well ahead of any other country. Just to uh, build off of what Eugene is saying, you know, um, like I can speak to that because of where I live. Uh, and having been to a lot of these places in the Middle East, it's like, it really is incredible how this gets completely erased from mainstream coverage, even from the uh, news organizations that continue to report from these regions. Um, and what I mean by that is like, it's not just the current military occupations or presence now, it's like three or four decades of just constant destruction. Um, and you can just take Iraq as an example. You know, the, the destruction of Iraq didn't start in 2003. It started with sanctions, 10 years of sanctions that took a country with the highest literacy rate in the mm -hmm. region for women 
had the, one of the most educated classes of people within a 10 year time span before the US invaded Iraq, within 10 years had the lowest literacy rate in the region because education was destroyed because of sanctions. And we know about the 500,000 children under the age of five who were killed by those sanctions. But then there's like the brain drain, people leave. It destroys a culture and a people in some of the most ancient areas of the world. And now we're watching it happen to Syria. Um, you know, Iraq was a very different place 40 years ago. Syria was a very different place 10 years ago. It was a lovely place that had the capacity to make its own medicines and produce its own clothing, um, had its own industries. And you compare that to now where you have this like, Uh, it looks like Radia just got like blinkered or something. Or yeah, they just blinked her out. She's, they, she just got zapped. Yeah, it says devices. It says devices not connected. Wow, that's like, it's like a, like a, like an NSA <laughs> malware tool just went and. You guys, as I was saying that, my electricity went out because I'm in Lebanon. Oh, uh, okay. oh, that, I, that, it's weird that's though. It's weird though, because my Wi-Fi was still working. It's just the, I, I have like an extra thing for when that happens, but I didn't have, for some reason, the audio wouldn't work. So I had to like leave and come back. Mm, okay. That's why you could see me and not hear me. But it, it's a perfect segue into what I was talking about. <laughs> yeah. um, because that's what happens. I don't know if you want to keep recording from here, but yeah, hey, that's- we'll, cut it. We'll, we'll make it work. <laughs> so my electricity went out because that's what happens in Lebanon. But that's another thing too, is like Lebanon has this like infrastructural decay uh, largely due to corruption, but it's like these corrupt systems were imposed on these countries. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the other thing that gets decontextualized to what Eugene was saying is like, when uh, Lebanon's covered or Iraq is covered, it's always through this prism of, oh, they're so corrupt, like something's like deficient about their culture. When like you guys imposed these systems on us, these neoliberal sectarian systems, and then you come and you report on our countries, like we have some sort of cultural deficiency that makes us incapable of being as good as you are and having as good infrastructure as you have. When A, you and your friends keep bombing it and B, like all of the people who are in charge and are corrupt are actually your allies. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I mean, America is super corrupt. Yeah. I, I mean, I feel like that's like, the since America has like a super well-developed kind of like, you know, lobbying, campaign finance, blah, blah, blah. And it's just kind of, you know, put a nice legal imprimatur over corruption, then they just go around the world and say, oh, you're super corrupt. I mean, it's like, what? I mean, please, like anyone observing Washington knows and, you know, anyone with any direct experience knows how directly corrupt it can be. I mean, just the idea of the revolving door concept that's so accepted in Washington is essentially legalized corruption. Like, I'm going to use my influence with my former colleagues to make millions of dollars um, on behalf of a business. I mean, what is that? You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. But I agree with you 100%. I mean, you know, the elements of colonialism, the impact of the Sykes-Picot agreement, I mean, all those, I mean, you know, well, I mean, I don't want to offend anyone here, but I mean, you look at some of these countries. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> like made up countries. Yeah. It also goes back to the fact that our education is so deficient in the United States. I, I mean, you talk about uh, these countries and how people feel about them. I mean, these these are the, not only some of the most ancient, but some of the most revered. I mean, the birthplace of modern mathematics in many ways, Baghdad. Um, you know, they say Damascus may be one of the oldest cities in the history of the world, ruled by Alexander and Saladin, you know, the greatest of historical figures. And I think the way that it's portrayed is like, oh, well, there's these random backwater places 
when the United States was one of the youngest countries on earth um, with you know no real significant history to speak of yeah. other than like slavery <laughs> and genociding of Native Americans yeah, right. and then you know destroying the rest of the earth um, it, it's like I mean, the, the humiliation that is visited upon people by the United States, I, I think it's hard for people in America to truly understand how this can feel. And like the, the idea of occupations and what goes on because they don't have any sense of the historical memory of many of these places and, and just the, you know, the, the chauvinism that's exhibited in the context of this US foreign policy. Now that everything is sorted out with Rania. Sorry uh, guys. <laughs> why, don't, why don't we talk about the, uh, struggle over raising the minimum wage to what I think, you know, we appropriately acknowledge is already a compromise that we're talking about $15 and not 20 or $25 an hour, but that we're talking about the minimum wage. And uh, this is a struggle that has been really visible and, and, and Rania wanted to get your take. And I would like to hear your take, Eugene, on, on, on what we're seeing play out among Democrats over this struggle. So I guess without really, you know, leading you in any direction, what's your what's your response to where we are right now? I mean, as we go to record this show, we're hearing something about a uh, Senate parliamentarian who has disqualified this as a measure that can be uh, included in the budget reconciliation bill, which is how they're going to do the stimulus bill since they cannot get Republican support. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a, an unbelievable situation in many ways, given how much prominence the Democrats have put on the $15 an hour minimum wage to 2020, by 2025, well, which is the Raise the Wage Act, that they would then seem to not really want to fight for it and to allow it to be trapped up in these rules. I mean, I think the easiest way to understand sort of the way it's playing out, uh, and you've set this up well, Kevin, is, is the Senate parliamentarian is basically a referee um, in the context of the Senate, that when there's an issue of like, based on the rules that they set for themselves, by the way, um, whether or not they have, you know, are doing it the right way. So it's, it's, you know, ultimately, it's a recommendation. It's not like the Senate parliamentarian has the power to just overrule it. I mean, the vast majority of rules in the Senate are, again, set by the Senate and the House themselves. Um, that's why they have rules committees. So as a lot of people are talking about, Kamala Harris is the president of the Senate, could just say, no, that's actually incorrect. This is in order. Um, and I am going to bring this to the floor and we are going to vote on that. Um, so it easily could be done. And the other thing that's also, but that also goes back to this, and I think it's important about understanding the context of the whole thing, is they don't actually have to do it this way by budget reconciliation. What is, this is really all about is they only have 51 votes, including the vice president of the Democrats. So that's a majority to pass anything they want. But because of, again, rules they make for themselves, there are a range of things that they just agree upon both sides that they're only going to have, they're going to allow, you can only vote on them, uh, pass them if they have 60 votes. It's just a made up rule. They just decided it, um, you know, it's related to the issue of uh, filibustering and different pieces like that. They could change all these things around if they wanted to. But either way, they could just end the filibuster and they could also pass it by 51 votes. But they don't want to do that because what the Democrats really want to avoid at all costs is seeming like they're actually doing something. They want to seem <laughs> that everything is super bipartisan and that as you know, Biden and the centrist Democrats and others have said, like, we're not Bernie Sanders, you know, we're not any of these radical people. We're we want to make some changes from the Republicans, no doubt, but we're gonna reach across the aisle, we're gonna to talk to them. This is American democracy. 
democracy, blah, blah, blah. This is, by the way, why the House also announced yesterday they're bringing back earmarks uh, so they can grease the wheels with out outright corruption um, and passing many bills. And so they, they, they want to use budget reconciliation because that's considered a legitimate thing. Like when you're trying to pass a budget, there's all these different issues to just do this and pass it quickly after you have some broad agreement. And thus... Um, you know, they have, you know, taken one of the arrows out of the quiver, but they could do it anyway. But they're saying they're probably not going to do that, have Kamala Harris overrule the parliamentarian, um, specifically because then two Democrats, Kristen Sinema and Joe Manchin, would vote against it um, and it would lose the whole package. I mean, there's so many things you could say about that, um, but it really just shows, I think, in the most narrow sense here that the Democrats, despite making a huge issue out of the $15 an hour minimum wage, now at the, the precipice of passing it, have just dropped it essentially mm -hmm. and have decided to just, I mean, forget, do something. I've just dropped it and it seems are going to move forward without doing this, despite saying it was one of their number one priorities. And it just gives you a sense of who these people really are in the White House and in the Democratic leadership that when push comes to shove on controversial issues that will make a big difference in the lives of working class people. I, I mean, you know, you think about the Raise the Wage Act. People are paid so low in America that the average worker who would be affected by this would actually make $3,000 per year extra uh, wow. to pay 25. So that's the average. So some people, it would make very little difference, but it just shows you that there are a huge number of people who are making you know such low salaries that they literally would be getting thousands of dollars of wage increases every single year from this, just going to 15. And as Kevin pointed out, that's still below where it should be. If the minimum wage was worth the same now as it was in 1968, it would be about 20, just over $20 an hour. So, you know, that really means that 15 is a compromise and people are paid so low that even that is going to be huge. But the Democrats, rather than give 32 million people in the country a raise, are just going to drop it. They don't want to do trillions of dollars every single day to Wall Street through the Federal Reserve. They, they, it seems like they don't, they're not willing to do even the most minimal of anything, whether it's with the minimum wage, whether it's with these relief checks. I mean, they're more invested in fighting to the death to get like near a tandem on mm -hmm. uh, as head of the office, budget office and, you know, of like prioritizing bombing countries. And um, I mean, they're, they, they, it's just, it's incredible given the level of suffering and misery in the country right now. Like we have a basic pandemic depression. Um, you've got 50 million people hungry. You've got another 15 million people, possibly more at this point. Oh, that number's from months ago. 15 million people lost their health insurance and have no access to health care uh, because they lost their jobs. And we have this stupid, archaic system of private health insurance that's tied to your employment. I mean, you just see, it's, it's, it's like Democrats won't even do the most minimal. Like it's almost kind of like, did Trump do more? Like, am I mistaken? Did Trump possibly, I mean, it's again, it's still early in Biden's presidency, but like Trump gave out more relief checks. So I, I just don't know. I don't understand. Like, it seems like a very short-sighted, even as a party, it seems like, I understand they're a capitalist right-wing party, but it seems incredibly short-sighted to be, to not even be willing to go to bat for like the most minimal thing that won't even change and affect uh, that like do anything to hurt the ruling class. They'll still have, you know, all their hoarded money. It's not like they're going to lose much, you know? 
Yeah, well, Trump had no problem, um, you know, using 51 votes to push through those tax cuts and give trillions right. of dollars to the ultra wealthy. I mean, I think that's really the thing that connects them is that they are both delivering. The difference is, is for Trump, he's actually delivering for his base. Biden is against them. But I think a lot of it, I think it's twofold, really. I mean, I think it's, you know, one, a calculation about um, how much blame they're really going to take. And I think that the Democrats are well aware of the fact that the Republicans are, you know, just so far to the right that they almost, the Democrats basically get a participation trophy. Um, <laughs> right. For a lot of people, because it's like, well, I mean, Jesus, this seems so terrible. Uh, I also think, though, that it speaks to how Biden won the election, right? And as much as people don't want to point this out, uh, and as I've laid out, you know, extensively in many places, and I wrote a piece on this, you can find at liberationnews.org. The real reason Biden did succeed in the swing states like Michigan, like Pennsylvania, um, you know, even like Georgia, where there was a lot of things going on. You know, the suburban surge played a huge role. What's the difference between Michigan and Ohio? What's the difference between Pennsylvania and North Carolina in terms of Trump and Biden winning? You could see it very clearly when you look at who turned out. Um, in the states that he won, he got a significant surge, Biden that is, from middle class, upper middle class people in the suburbs who, for whatever reason, were upset at Trump. I think in 2018, that was the same style that the Democrats used to take back the House. It's obvious that for the leadership of the Democratic Party, you know, a big piece of their political strategy is to build a political base of people within the quote unquote middle classes, the better off section of the quote unquote middle classes that is numerically a, a decently large number of people of whom they can build a politics for which the the essence of of working class politics is not that important, right? So you, you can sell out on the minimum wage even if most Democrats want the minimum wage because you're figuring, well, I'm not getting most of my votes from there. A lot of working class people don't vote. Um, you know, of those who do, most of them don't think that there's any other choice and would never vote for Republicans. Um, and so you start to look at this and you can see it's their political calculations that they don't really want, despite the phraseology, the Democrats are not really trying to build a political party that's based on exploited and oppressed people. They want the phraseology of being for working class people and for unions. They want the phraseology of being for black people and for Latinos. But they really want a political coalition that has a minimum of those individuals and a maximum of these suburban upper class whites. And when you look at what Republicans are saying, they are many of the strategists. They're saying, yeah, we've lost those people to the Democrats and, you know, we're moving on. And that's why we're sticking with Trump. And, and I think that it's just an important commentary about why these things seem to happen for Democrats is that they are presenting a face that's not the same as what they're really assembling in terms of the forces behind them. So you have big capital and you have middle class voters who do want this bipartisan reach across the aisle hail fellow well met thing because it meets their view of mythical american democracy that's been relatively good to them. Mhm. Mm yeah, it's it's really a play for the academic multiculturalism among this section of the population that you're describing and while I've seen people try to keep the two issues separate, it's almost impossible for me to keep this battle over near a tandem separate from this fight over the minimum wage than the way that you know, Rania mentioned it. I think you know, it, it's hard to disentangle. I, 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 in addition to the fact that Neera Tandon herself, Center for American Progress, has a record of opposing raising the minimum wage, had actually come out against this in its early stages. Uh, and she was an aide to Hillary Clinton 
that suggested that they keep a distance from this battle when she was running for president in 2016, uh, or that they somehow, I guess, wait until the SEIU had endorsed them, or they, they, they wanted to do a lot of hedging around it, or to say that they supported raising the minimum wage, but not give a number. I remember that was part of their strategy, that they just wanted to keep it vague as to what number they would allow, which is sort of what Republicans are doing right now. They don't really want to say they're against raising the minimum wage. They just don't want to tell you what number they would accept politically. And I think it's important for us to point out who is expected to come along for the ride on this bill. It's 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 not Joe Manchin and, and Kirsten Cinema who are going to be expected to support whatever end bill results. It's Bernie Sanders or or, or, or Liz Warren or people who represent as the more progressive in the party. They're the ones that have to align with this vision. It's, it's almost incredible to me that in a party that would claim discipline among its centrist liberal senators or center-right senators or whatever, that they are not expected to support for the good of the bill. You know, that, that, that Joe Manchin or Kirsten Cinema isn't told, well, you may be ideologically opposed to this, but eat it for us and we'll defend you in your reelection campaign so that you do not face the liability of backing this policy that you think is going to upset your base of, uh, if, if in fact, that is why they're opposed to it and it's not something more corporate. If the fact is legitimate that they fear losing to a Republican in their race, it's very incredible to me that we don't see a pledge from Joe Biden's administration to go to bat for these people so that they are supported in their reelection campaigns if, if, if they if they go forward. So uh, it, it's really crazy because I just think that Joe Biden identifies with cinema and Manchin more closely than obviously like Sanders or Warren. And so he sh his people should be the one telling them here, this is why you can support raising the minimum wage. But we don't see any of that. There's no whipping of people who are ideologically in line with him, which tells you that they really don't want to have this fight. And so then to me, I think that leads to a more larger problem, which maybe you want to address, Eugene, which is, is this whole idea of raising the minimum wage just a wedge issue, much like the culture war issues that the right makes up? I mean, okay, right, like, you know, they'll they'll demagogue abortion or they'll demagogue gay marriage in the past or they'll they'll take these issues and they'll make a big deal out of them. But there's really no policy to it. Not not like it tends to not be policy. Sometimes you'll have court battles that you win. But, but by and large, except excluding the state level, you don't see much policy making on the national stage. It's all just for them to win votes. I, I think you're 100 percent correct, Kevin. And when you really look at the minimum wage, you know, most minimum wage raises come because there are ballot referendums. Uh, I mean, you do get some from city councils, but I mean, especially at the state level, um, obviously at the federal level, you can't do that. But I think it's very notable that the minimum wage tends to be raised, at least when it's raised significantly, only at a point where voters go directly to the ballot box to speak on it directly and or where there is just some 
you know, sort of equally as significant representation uh, of, of why someone would need to support it or something that is like, you know, near that. Like a lot of times people will get signatures to go to the ballot and then a city council will go and raise it to $15 an hour because they don't want to deal with it. And I think that it's deeply, deeply notable that there's been very little action on the federal level from the Democratic Party on an issue that they claim to care about. But, you know, when it comes, I, I think you can say that about almost all like sort of workers' rights kind of issues where they only want to tinker around the edges, but they speak in such broad tones. I mean, obviously the Employee Free Choice Act during the Obama administration um, was not passed to, to have a, what that basically was, was if every one of your, if the majority of people at your workplace sign a card that say they want to join a union, you have a union. You don't need to have an election. Um, major priority for labor, obviously would transform the landscape of labor organizing. You don't have that. You have the PRO Act right now, which has many, many good things in it. Um, heavy push coming from the labor movement and anyone else who wants to see workers rise in this country. And the Biden administration, even though Biden is for the PRO Act, is not really saying or doing much. And then on top of that, is basically sitting out the Amazon fight. Now you're telling me you're the most pro-union president forever, which is what Biden's saying, that you're 100% for workers, you're 100% for unions, you're 100% for the PRO Act, and you can't speak up for the biggest union organizing campaign in the country right now. I, I think you're right. I think that they want the benefit of claiming that they're for these issues, but they don't really have a serious policy commitment to following through on it. I mean, even the Raise the Wage Act had trouble getting through the House at first because a lot of Democrats were saying, no, we shouldn't go to 15, um, we should go to 13 or whatever. Uh, it is including Terry Sewell, by the way, who's a surrogate for Biden in Alabama. Um, so it, it, just, it just goes back to the exact point that you're making, Kevin, about the wedge issues, which is this, like they want to appear in certain ways to get a certain subset of votes, but they're gonna act in a way that really allows them to get the votes that they want, which is like rich people and upper middle-class people and people who think the system works, who they can you know, construct this sort of liberal politics around. They don't want too many people from these, you know, working class, hard hit communities being involved at all, even voting for them. They would prefer to be lower voting because they don't want to be held to higher expectations about what they're really doing. What a dead end party. Like, it's just, oh, Democrats. <laughs> I mean, it's like, we've been having this conversation for, I feel like since I became, since I've been in journalism, um, this has been the conversation and it's just going in circles and in circles. And it's like, at what point, uh, are we going to stop? And I don't, by we, I don't mean you guys. I just mean like progressives, right? Like progressives, people on the left, at what point uh, is it going to be like enough? Um, no more of this, you know, abusive relationship where you just like give Democrats support because you're scared of Republicans. When they just behave like Republicans, we get the same policies with both parties. And I go back and forth on this, but you know, it's just now that Biden's actually in office and you see how little is changing and again, not surprising, but still it's like, what's the difference? Like, yeah, I mean, it's one of those things that I feel like it depends on how you want to look at it. Right. Like, I think some people look at it and will like they will just run down a list of 100 things that are different. Right. Um, but I think that the greater truth behind what you're saying is. What is the difference when the only thing that changes is the gradation on devastation, destruction, humiliation, exploitation, oppression? Like, that seems not good. You know what I mean? <laughs> I feel like when people get right down to the micro and they'll say, well, this one thing is slightly better than this one other thing. And not thinking like, you know, it, it's sort of like, I, maybe put it in a different context. Like, 
if I spent $100 million on a charity to feed people and people are like, oh, that's so great that you spent $100 million on charity to feed people. Um, but most people would not ask, wow, why do you need to spend $100 million on yeah. charity? <laughs> why are so many people hungry? Where are we going? What are we doing? And so like, yeah, of course, we could. I, I could probably name five off the top of my head right now where yeah. the situation is better for some people than better for others. But for some, it's the exact same. For some, it's actually worse. For, a lot, yeah. for everybody, the trend is still worse. The trend is just a variation on a slow decline of living standards of everyone but the ultra wealthy. Like but every president from Reagan on, the trend has been a downward, a race to the bottom, and really around the world, a race to the bottom to take down people's living standards um, in the search of profit. And I think that you can't get away from that. And I think we have to ask, like people say lesser of two evils. But if you've been saying lesser of two evils since 1980, and they've been saying it since longer than that, really. Yeah. Um, if you've been saying that since 1980, and the political spectrum has only moved further to the right, and that in the context of that, you had the complete gutting of the social welfare and safety net under Democrats, then I think, you know, you have to start to ask yourself, okay, well, wait a second here. What is it going to take to turn the ship around and to right the ship? And, and I think that that is the question that people have to ask themselves when they're thinking about political strategy um, is, you know, what, you can't just think about the next election. Like you right. have to think about the drift in the direction of politics in the country and what it takes to turn it around. And I think a big piece of that too is the people who don't vote, who are a vital mm -hmm. social force that mm -hmm. sometimes intervene in society, like with the uprisings last um, year. You know what I'm saying? Sometimes people vote by burning down a police station. Um, but you know, most people feel who are alienated from the voting system are alienated from politics. They think nothing can change and that no matter what, their life is gonna be terrible. And I don't think those people can be reached by traditional politics. Mm -hmm. I don't think they can even be reached by you know Bernie Sanders. This is why he didn't mobilize who he said he was gonna mobilize in the numbers he said he was. No disrespect to Bernie Sanders or his movement, but you've got a movement 100% directed towards the working class when a huge subset of the people are like, yo, these people don't care about us. These are just all political games. And it's mm -hmm. being proven to them right now when Bernie Sanders is in there playing political games yep. with the leadership of the Democratic Party. But if you don't have a political strategy for how you motiva motivate the youth in the streets of Minneapolis who are ready to struggle but don't care about voting in a mm -hmm. transformative way to change their own reality, what are you really doing? And I think we restrict the narrowness of politics to the Democrats. I think too many progressive people restrict the horizons of politics to how do we get a better Democrat to appeal to people who don't vote to get more votes rather than thinking about why people aren't voting in the first place and how our political strategy should reflect that as well. Eugene got me all fired up. Well, yeah, and I think we have to recognize <laughs> that there are so many who see this as a charade at this point that the two parties are essentially reinforcing each other's existence within the structures of power. As in the Republicans exist because they oppose Democrats. The Democrats exist, well, they're supposed to exist to oppose Republicans, but they don't usually, you can see where I got trapped in my, uh, <laughs> my, my, my deconstruction of, of, of the way it's organized because often they are the party that is asking accommodation, but then people see the incongruency, they see the contradictions of a party that cries foul that they can't let Donald Trump have his ability to launch nuclear weapons, or he can't be trusted with our missile systems, or he can't be trusted to launch wars or um, maybe manage the borders, whatever. 
and because he's erratic. And then then when they have the chance to oppose these policies, they don't because they're actually more in line with their politics than they care to admit. And so substantively, they're in more agreement. They just would have you um, behave differently in the way that you carry out those policies, which to people like us, we don't see any meaningful difference from that. This isn't like a like the there there is no meaningful difference. I mean, all of a sudden, I mean, there's a kind of a sick joke or a dark humor that goes around of like the people who are being bombed don't really care whether it's by a president Donald Trump or by you know Joe Biden who has the best LBGTQIA coalition in the history of this country or or, or whatever. You know, like they're still gonna die from those bombs in that country regardless. So, so what do I don't know. Care? Let me let me go ask that. I've been talking to a lot of fruit vendors on the street, <laughs> <laughs> and, and they tell me that they care. But to, to build off what you're saying I too is videos, by the way. yeah. Well, hold on, I'm not. I'm not actually, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Go ahead, Kevin. I'm not actually filled. I, I, I was actually building up to something that I, I I wanted to say here, which is that you know that these these two parties because. They, they they reinforce each other. It goes back to where Eugene was going. And I, I again, I didn't want to leave it entirely. I just wanted to ask more another question about the serious strikes. But earlier in our podcast, you, you, were, you were raising this thing of teams and how you know everyone has their own quadrant that they exist. And so it, you know, I think people like to get worked up about polarization. People get really worked up in this country about divisiveness. Um, they, 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 they don't like that it's all tribalism. You know, are you a Democrat or a Republican? And I think they don't like the tribalism because both of those parties fail to serve those working class needs, right? So, so why would you want to be part of either of those groups if they're not actually helping people, but you feel pressured into picking a side? And the, 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 the commonality that I've come to recognize in my work, which is limited to the last 14 years, but just in doing journalism for the last 14 years, it's become incredibly obvious that the easiest way to, 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 to get rid of all of this dynamic would be to just have a multipolar political system in this country that had multiple parties where it wasn't just two choices that you had, because like the whole system depends on us only having two political parties. It, it becomes very clear that, 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 that they have to keep reinforcing this system in order for them to exist. And, and once you had, you know, it, you could almost make common cause. I don't, I don't know if I would agree with it, but like just, just having like a couple right-wing parties in addition to it, just having like two or three left parties, just having that in the system would change this dynamic that we're seeing with the stimulus bill almost immediately because it would change the calculus of, of people as they're making their decisions about what they're willing to support. Yeah, I mean, I think that without a doubt, the system is 100% structured uh, in a way that does reinforce the two parties as exactly as you say, to restrict people's political imagination about what's actually possible um, and to you know limit the ability and I think we underplay this, quite frankly, and, and underemphasize it to limit the ability of just average people, so to speak, to really affect the political sphere. I mean, obviously, it's in anyone who knows the early history of America, this is exactly what the founders wanted. But, you know, everything from the Electoral College to the Senate to gerrymandering to all these things that are 
you know, built at the Supreme Court, quite frankly, they're built into the system in such a way that there are so many different layers between like a person and any substantive decision. And the higher up you go up the ladder, the only way to really get any input is to have money. Uh, and that it really is just structured in such a way that it does favor, I think, the most conservative of all possible outcomes in any major struggle. And nine times out of 10, the most conservative of all possible outcomes is basically what's gonna happen. I mean, even good things are usually the one of the most conservatives of all possible outcomes. I mean, you know, you can look at the impact of the civil rights movement in the United States, and certainly many of the things that happened were very good. But if you look at the agenda of the civil rights groups, and I'm talking about in the so-called like non-radical phase of 1960, 61, 62, 63, 64, you can see a significant part of their agenda was never enacted, especially the far-ranging social elements of the agenda around economics, around healthcare, around other pieces like that. It just was never really touched. So, you know, even in that context, which were periods of great change, certainly good things happening, you can see how the system itself was built on sort on, on reinforcing, quite frankly, um, uh, you know, these most conservative elements in, in many ways. I could go on and on forever on history. But yeah, I think that absolutely, the two major parties are a direct block in people's minds about what's possible. It's set up that way. It is designed to pressure people. And I think the reason why America has such a, you know, capitalism is predatory everywhere, um, you know, but ultimately in America, I think part of the reason why it's so incredibly predatory and everything is so marketized really is the fact that the political system really sets up that there is no alternative thing better than maybe any other political system on the planet. And I think to uh, it's a really it's really good also, of course, to remember, and maybe this is a good segue into one of the last things we wanted to discuss, but is the amount of uh, of energy and resources that the state placed into destroying um, any sort of radical left alternative. Uh, you know, we, we talked last week, me and Kevin, about Judas and the Black Messiah, which I know, you know, the Fred Hampton movie, which I know, Eugene, you guys at Breakthrough News did a really good, um, like, uh, live stream on that people can go watch on YouTube, really uh, discussing it and breaking it down. Um, we don't have to get too much into that movie, but there was uh, news, I think it was la late last week, that sort of just kind of got dropped and didn't make too big of a splash, but it should have. Um, and it was about the the assassination of Malcolm X. Kevin, do you want to talk a little bit about the details with that? I I think I'm fine with having Eugene get into it. Uh, I'm sure that he's familiar with it. But it was my understanding that there was a um, an officer with the NYPD who who died and left this letter in 2011 with his son that contained evidence of the NYPD's involvement and that they were either complicit or were actually working with the FBI to create a scenario in which Malcolm X would be vulnerable to an assassination simply by the fact that they had their security detail arrested for charges or trumped up charges um, just so that they would be able to um, know that uh, Malcolm X could be assassinated. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great setup. I mean, that's really what it was. I guess it was it, it was a theoretical deathbed con confession. I guess the guy thought he was going to die, then he didn't die. He asked the family to keep it secret. They brought it out. I mean, you know, I had mixed feelings about the rollout in and of itself because it was, you know, 
sort of bizarrely done in a way to try to exonerate this person um, who was directly involved by his own words and his own hands, more or less, with the broader climate around the assassination of Malcolm X. And a lot of it was in, you know, trying to basically excuse informants and the and then the police and the people who played this role, which I thought was inexcusable. But what I will say is, um, you know, it does speak to the existing broad body of evidence that's, that's out there um, that has existed for some time about many different elements of this, but certainly the involvement of the NYPD. And, and there's many other things that have been known. For instance, one of Malcolm X's close bodyguards who was an NYPD and undercover agent um, um, with their uh, one of their intelligence units. So many things like that that have been known and that have come out over the years and that have played out. You know, a lot of the controversies over who exactly did the killing um, and, you know, that's both clear and unclear, but nevertheless, it does, the, the thing that is clear is that some people were fingered for it who were not involved. And that that speaks, again, to the broader climate of complicity that was certainly at the NYPD level, certainly at the FBI level, more of that is coming out. I know that the, the this letter in and of itself has sparked many of the best scholars, I'd say especially Zach Kondo and people like that, um, back to start to look into some of this element of the arresting of the security, of the compromising of the security uh, of, of Malcolm X. So we'll see what comes of that. But you know what I, I will say about it, and I, you know, periodically things like this have come out over the past 10 or 15 years, especially that have just sort of deepened the narrative of what I think has certainly been clear from the beginning, but certainly clear since the early 90s in terms of work that has, has been done um, by many authors, uh, that there was a there was a significant climate that was created, first and foremost, by the FBI between the Nation of Islam and Malcolm X and within the Nation of Islam itself to create the type of poisonous climate that people would um, want to do violence to one another. Secondly, there was the deep infiltration and manipulation of people directly um, at multiple levels, both as undercover people and informants. And this is something that we know. Um, and you put these things together, it's been 100% clear for some time that at least the broader context of it was you know, set in motion, contextualized, pushed forward in different ways by the state security forces. I think what's been becoming more and more uh, known and what this letter reflects as much as anything else is that it was less of the overall climate issue, even though that's a bigger issue, but as much of it really was direct and deliberate interventions um, in the lives and the workings of the organizations and these individuals uh, to, to uh, set the stage for assassinations. Um, and I think we'll only really learn more about this as time goes on. I think the same thing has been true about the surveillance about Martin Luther King. As time has gone on, we've learned more and more from government files and things like that that have been released, that have been found from confessions that people have made uh, about the involvement of the state. But I, I think there's really no doubt about it. And this proves yet again that Malcolm X was targeted by the most powerful forces in this country because he was very dangerous to them and that ultimately they could not allow him to live and that they did everything possible as we've learned not just him many others to eliminate him as a source of leadership. Yeah and I, I you know the one thing I'll say just having worked with files like this that have to do with things that are closely guarded secrets of our government because they're incredibly embarrassing they implicate them in horrific crimes, uh, you know, we're still, there's still tons of files connected to the JFK assassination mm -hmm. that, that we do not have. And they, you know, if they were released now, people might read them and be like, well, why are they keeping this secret? We don't know how they directly connect to the, the JFK assassination, but there's something about them 
that they're protecting. And so I guess for people who are wondering if there are files that could be in the possession of the FBI or even the NYPD about Malcolm X that haven't been released, I would say they absolutely could be. Even a half century later, they could be closely guarding those still because of the fact that they you know, didn't want this truth to be out there. I think that's 100% true. And, you know, we've seen this with the JFK assassinate, this ridiculous smear that it was the KGB. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> just suffice it to say, nobody then or now has ever credibly alleged that. And this to be surfaced by some former CIA director is absurd. Um, but anyway, I think that's 100% true. I mean, we know for sure with Martin Luther King that there are the sealed files that are sealed under court order that are supposed to be released after a certain time seal which I think is in the next three or four years. I agree with you 100%, Kevin, that there are things that are undoubtedly closely guarded about all of this in terms of the NYPD, in terms of the FBI. Uh, I mean, even, quite frankly, even just the non-redacted files that have been released in and of themselves, like there's so many interesting holes where obviously so much could be filled um, if, if we were able to see like the raw files in and of themselves of the ones that have been released. But I think the way we know the US government does these things, they drip them out and, and anytime they have to present, pre, uh, present files, they limit the scope as much as they possibly can, which is why you often have to do disclosure work on the same issue yeah. over and over and over and over again. And where 50 years later, you're still like, oh, we're learning new things. So I suspect when it comes to Malcolm X, where I would say of all the assassinations of that era, there's probably been the least official like looks looking into it. I feel like almost all the other assassinations have had a little bit more of a legal imprimatur, um, a little bit more of a government imprimatur around some element of it. The Malcolm X assassination has been primarily independent scholars, uh, more so than the other ones, which have also been primarily independent scholars. Uh, and it's been much more of a pulling of teeth. So it leads me to believe that there is probably some deeply complicit things. And what we really know also as well about the impact Malcolm was having on the international level, the way he was moving in Ghana, the way he was moving in the, the Middle East, which seems to, in retrospect, have had some ties to Kwame Nkrumah and some of his strategies around Pan-African um, moves. I think the involvement of the CIA is something mm -hmm. that needs to be looked into much more heavily as it regards Malcolm X, because he was moving very heavily with people. We knew they overthrew several, I mean, they overthrew Nkrumah the same year that they assassinated Malcolm X, right? Um, and I think knowing that he was moving in that front, the impact of the Nation of Islam as a mass organization and what Malcolm's leadership could have meant moving forward, I, I suspect there's a lot more there in the CIA archives than maybe even the FBI, perhaps. About oh, well, yeah, that's yeah. a really good point. That hasn't really been probed. Yeah, that that's a really great point. You're so diplomatic. I'll just go ahead and say it. We all know the deep state killed all of these people. JFK. No, I mean, there's just it's no, like, no, how could you not suspect it? You know, and that's I mean, there's a reason that they like you said, drip out information. Um, and especially I think that's a really excellent point you make about the CIA versus the FBI is that the CIA would be way more invested in someone like Malcolm X because of his international ties. Um, that makes such a difference because the CIA wouldn't be necessarily going after someone like MLK. 
Uh, he was much more, you know, he said some things about Vietnam, but he was much more domestic. Although they were, as we learned from Operation K. <gasps> right, right. But like you would, but he wasn't like involved with leaders. They, well, he wasn't like, not in the same way Malcolm X was. He wasn't going to play an international role in the same way. I mean, it was yeah. obvious that Malcolm was moving at a level where he wanted to internationalize, internationalize the Black liberation struggle and legitimize it as a, as a mm -hmm. colonial struggle. Like the colonial that's a huge struggle threat. around yeah. the world, which would legitimize the instrument of armed struggle, which of course we know Malcolm thought that self-defense and you know, me meeting the oppressor in the language they understand, as he put it, was deeply important. And to be affiliated with Kwame Nkrumah, who at that point was considered the most dangerous person in Africa by all of the Western nations, to be moving around and touching all the radicals in countries like the UK. He was banned from France because they were afraid of the impact that he could have. You have the emergence of Algeria as an independent pole supporting revolutionaries, and he's building ties with them. He's building ties with Egypt before Sadat was a sellout. Um, and mm -hmm. when Nasser was even still there and influencing that politics. And so you have the whole context of the rising colonial world in the mid 1960s that was revolting against the imperial neo-colonial setup. And here was Malcolm X who had the cachet, who had the clout, who had the knowledge and the ability to unite people in the country that was saying, yeah, I feel more akin to these people not yeah. the leaders of the United States. And I'm fighting for black freedom and black liberation by any means necessary. And we will look for and seek allies anywhere we can get them. And there's no, if you wanna be destroyed by the US government, the easiest way to do it is to be a black person who's seeking international allies for the struggle in the United States. They did it to Paul Robeson, uh, they did it to Mark. I was Trump. gonna say, you know, Paul Robeson, what's so interesting to me about Paul Robeson is that he is a figure that has been so erased from history. He was this unbelievably internationally popular, like famous person. The most um, famous person on earth, probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 1948, 49, 1950, probably the most famous person on earth. And he, I mean, you don't learn, you don't even touch on, he doesn't, his name does not come up in school textbooks even once. He has been erased from popular culture. He's been erased from history. Um, I mean, he he was before the time of like Malcolm X and, and, and MLK and the Black Panthers. Um, but it's just, it's incredible to me that like one of the ways that I learned about Paul Robeson was seeing streets named after him in third world countries. Like I, it's a, a completely erased from American history in a way like I don't think I can equate with anyone else. I mean, it's, it's, it's an amazing fact. Also one of the greatest college football players of all time, by the way. Yeah. For, for years and years. Actor, singer. The college football uh, statistics books because mm -hmm. no one wanted to affiliate with Paul Robeson. But I think really the erasure of Paul Robeson is, I don't know if anyone has ever so eloquently exposed the falsity of the American concept of democracy and so willingly associated this progressive struggles in America with the progressive struggles around the world in a way that was understandable because he linked people through song. I mean, he was mm -hmm. someone who spoke multiple languages, but would always could, would seek to learn songs in their original languages. So he represented struggles, but he had that cultural bridge between peoples uh, that really spoke to humanity. And I think that was obviously critically dangerous in the context of the Cold War. I mean, he was the exact type of person that could make people think, why are we doing this? This is totally crazy. Why do we want to have a bunch of nuclear missiles pointed at each other and support a bunch of weird, you know, proto-Nazi colonial and, stuff. And he was an unapologetic communist. And like, they had to take him down. They had to take yeah. him down. He was too, he was too good, in a way, at promoting the politics that they hated. And I think in retrospect, he's still so fresh and so meaningful, bringing him back. And, and there's a little bit of an attempt, I think, to, to bring Robeson into the canon of 
you know, people who are considered like, okay, it's a little, little attempt. But when you see stuff like the New York Times, you know, doing the thing about the 100 years of the Russian Revolution, and they snuck a couple articles in there, like um, Sarah Jaffe had an article that I thought was actually quite good um, about the impact of black communism um, in, you know, the broader parts of the country. There's a little bit of an attempt to redefine the era of communist, the communist heyday as really an era of liberalism. Um, and the communist is like really just like energetic militant liberals. Um, now, you know, anyway, I, anyway, long story short. Energetic <laughs> militant liberals? Wait, what? Yeah, I, mean, I think that's exactly, I mean, and you can see it with the Malcolm X. I mean, you look at the Manning Marable uh, biography, which is terrible, where the whole epilogue is like how Malcolm X would be against Osama bin Laden and support Barack Obama, yeah. which is like, what? Like, what does that have to do with anything? Uh, <laughs> it just makes no sense. You know, Peniel Joseph, the so-called scholar of black power, who puts the entire radical black movement in the context of democracy and says, even though these people said they were radical communists, Marxist, Leninists, anti-imperialist, socialists, they really were just like liberal Democrats. But because America was so conservative, they could only express that in this radical register. And it's like totally absurd, but you know, people read that wait until midnight or whatever that dumb Peniel Joseph book is. Um, and they're like, yeah, I know about black power. And so there's such an effort now, I think because the country is becoming more radical again, to try to now appropriate way more of the radical figures because they're becoming relevant in a way that they hadn't been before. And as much as I'll criticize YouTube, the ability of YouTube to allow you to hear from people unmediated by the media, yeah. I think makes people even more dangerous because you can listen to Paul Robeson, you can listen to Fred Hampton, you can listen to Malcolm X, say their own piece and, and you know, develop your own, your own feelings about it. Right. Yeah. So, so, so as we go, just let me say that if the CIA does have these files, it's likely that they destroyed them on Malcolm X because we know that there's files on Patrice Lumumba that were destroyed um, related to the assassination of him and how 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 the the nature of, of what went on uh, still has some mystique to it obviously deliberately uh so let, let me just say uh i'll let rania say whatever she wants to sign off but um as as we let you go thank you for joining us and i wanted to take a moment to appreciate uh as as rania already mentioned the stream you did for judas and the black messiah and just i was i'm glad that you engaged with the film on its merits there's a lot of um this, I, I feel like there's this culture among the left of looking at works that come out of uh, whether it's music or film and, and, and talking a lot about what it isn't and sometimes yeah. not being willing to engage with what it is. And if people who don't like the way the film is told can at least pull back and introduce themselves to why Shaka King developed the film the way he did, if he can appreciate the crew and the people that were assembled to make it and, and see the, and see the hustle. Like I just would like an appreciation of the hustle that went into making this film possible and to acknowledge it for what it is rather than what it is not. And I thought that your stream and on the people you assembled and how you were engaging with it was very good you know it's not you know if there's parts of it that you don't like that's fine but you were at least acknowledging the parts of the film that are good to um us culturally that 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 that, that we can find something within and so anyway i just wanted to give you kudos for um treating it fairly because i think if we don't contest this space then we have only ourselves to blame for it becoming entirely corporatized and entirely disconnected from everybody who views it on a regular basis. Definitely. Appreciate that. Thank you.
And on that note, this was awesome. Yeah, it's so great. glad we got to have you on. Um, Eugene, tell people where they can find all of your amazing work. Absolutely. Well, breakthrough news, you can check us out across all of your social media platforms at BT Newsroom, at BT Newsroom. Um, we're also on YouTube, of course, Breakthrough News, uh, patreon.com slash breakthrough news. Uh, and then also you can find me at Eugene Perrier on Twitter.